Good morning, church. Well, there seems to be a theme in the liturgy this morning, and it involves wealth. (laughs) You see, the Bible speaks a lot of wealth. Uh, Wealth and treasure have always had an incredible allure. I mean, just look throughout history. Look at the number of people in prison for crimes they commit, trying to evade taxes and, and gain Uh, as much as they can in whatever ways they can. I mean, the Bible itself is filled with many examples of men and women who were crushingly derailed by the temptation uh, that wealth offers. When Israel was beginning their conquest of the Holy Land, um, Achan decided to take just a little treasure for himself from the spoils of war when that treasure had been commanded by God to be devoted to full destruction. Uh, And in result, even though it was just a little treasure, it cost him his life. Or how about when the church got started, Ananias and Sapphira, they had sold some property and committed all of it to the Lord and then lied about keeping some of it, and it cost them their lives as well. I think on this side of things, they would say that wasn't worth it. You see, treasure of all kinds carries powerful temptation, and this is the stuff, honestly, of epic stories. And I was thinking about this the other day when my family and I, um, as I look back on a movie my family and I just watched, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Spoiler alert, um, but it, it's 30, like 35 years old, so if you haven't seen it by now, um, it's not my fault. So Indiana Jones makes it to the chamber of the Holy Grail, right? And he's there because he wants to save his dad's life. And his, uh, for his, his sake, he's not there seeking the fame, the treasure, and the glory of the Grail. He's seeking to help his dad. He has to go and find the Grail to get it because, well, that's how the whole thing unfolded. But the, right behind him comes the chief villain who was driving this whole grail quest. And for him, the quest was the desire for immortality in this world. And long life and riches and status was his all-consuming ambition. And ultimately, it led to his untimely death instead of the everlasting life he thought he would have. And as his um, freshly exposed skeleton explodes, <laughs> the 900-year-old knight in the chamber turns to Indiana Jones and famously says, he chose poorly. And while that's a fictional story, it actually makes a true point about the danger of earthly treasures, and a point that isn't far off from a point that Jesus made in real life in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would open with me to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. So Jesus says this, these are the words of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
See, in talking to his disciples, which would include every one of us who belongs to the Lord and follows him in repentant faith, Jesus has some strong words to say about the things we treasure, whether wealth, money, fame, health, status. And he concludes his exhortation by putting a choice before us. Whom will you serve? You can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. And if we choose poorly, it will be catastrophic. And yet Jesus is here speaking these very plain and serious words to us as a gracious Lord who gives, gives us every opportunity and has the intention of us choosing wisely. And so let's consider closely what he says. So look again at verses 19 through 21. Jesus says not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, but instead to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. We're going to call this Economics 101, okay, which perhaps looking around, we need a little of that, right? There's a lot that the Bible says about economics, a lot of it says about wealth, about work, private property, giving, taxes, government. The Bible says a lot about these things, but the entry gate to everything the Bible says about economics is summed up by Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So everything belongs to God. If we don't get that, we don't understand anything about the things that God has entrusted to us. God owns everything. That's the first economic lesson that the Bible teaches. And in close second is what Jesus tells us in verses 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And this might seem in the Sermon on the Mount to come out of nowhere. And it's not at all immediately clear how what Jesus is saying about treasures on earth and heaven has to do with fasting, which he just talked about, or prayer, which he talked about just before that. I mean, what does this have to do with where he's been in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, let's remember for a moment what we've said for the past several sermons, which is that Matthew 6, verse 1, is the controlling verse for everything that's gone on in chapter 6 up to now. So let's look at verse 1 together. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, the heart of what's going on here is honoring God in authentic Christianity that seeks his pleasure instead of our fame, that seeks his glory instead of ours. That's what Jesus wants us to know is at the heart of authentic Christian living. And he gives three illustrations to make his point. First, he talks about giving to the needy for the Father's eyes only instead of to be noticed by others. And then in his second example, he gives us a prayer life that is centered on God and his glory rather than on our own glory. And it's in this context that he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And then finally, fasting in a way that draws our hearts upward to God instead of drawing other people's eyes to us. These are Jesus' three illustrations, and in each of these things, Jesus talks about reward. And so the refrain comes back, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And it's these rewards that Jesus has in view, this treasure, when he tells us not to lay up treasures on earth for ourselves, but rather to strive to please the Father and to seek for the glory that comes from him alone, which only he can give and which does not fade. True treasure indeed. Let me ask you, how common is it to be preoccupied with wealth? Whether money, real estate, status, family heirlooms, cars, or whatever else our hearts can become, consumed with. 
Well, to, to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? It's that common. It's that common. And not only for the rich. The poor are as much at risk of being single-mindedly preoccupied with treasure as anyone else. Because you see, all of us, whether rich or poor, come from two parents, Adam and Eve, who famously stole a treasure that was not theirs and lost eternal life in the garden. But rather than just telling us to seek heavenly treasure and not earthly treasure, because Jesus could have done that, right? He could have said, seek this, not that, end of story. Jesus graciously teaches us some important spiritual and economic lessons for our benefit so that we would understand really what's going on. The first of which is this, that earthly treasure decays. Earthly treasure decays. See, Jesus says that moth and rust destroy it. Thieves break in and steal it. The goods and the money and the things we work so hard to get, what happens to them? Well, they lose value over time, oftentimes. See, they break down. That new house that we broke the bank to build starts to leak. Warranties expire. The retirement savings we stow away get eaten by bear markets, bad policies, and wars. Hurricanes and fires wipe out the treasures that people spend a lifetime hoarding. The words Jesus uses tip us off to the fact that while money may be the primary way that we accumulate treasure in our culture, it's actually much wider than that. It's anything that can become an idol in our hearts that we treasure as our own, to which we might greedily say, my precious. You see, when Jesus says that moths destroy, that would primarily here in this context include fine clothing and textile goods, which were um, very precious to the wealthy in Jesus' day. Rust gets at the precious metals and the valuables that are prone to chemical corrosion over time. Today, in our context, that would include even the finest cars or tools, which over time rust and fade. And so Jesus takes aim at anything that become an idol, something that is a controlling desire of our hearts for which we will sin in order to get it, or we will sin if we don't. That's how you know you're dealing with an idol. Will you sin in order to get it? Will you throw a fit? and sin and be angry if you don't get it. Everyone has a vision of what the good life looks like, what it includes, how much money is enough, what amenities are important that they can't do without, and to this, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But notice what he doesn't do, though. You see, as important as it is to recognize that earthly treasure decays, Jesus does not say that having earthly treasure in and of itself is wrong. And we'll come back to this at the end, but I'd suggest to you that the key words to understanding what Jesus is warning us against here are these two words, for yourselves. Do not lay up treasures on earth for yourselves. In the kind of wealth accumulation that Jesus is considering, it's the kind of accumulation that is centered on the self, for the self, that the self may be taken care of, that the self may be enjoyed and exalted, not God. And anyone who benefits from that self-accumulation benefits by accident and on the fringes instead of by intention. And so Jesus clearly says, don't spend your energy and focus on what decays. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Rather, labor for a treasure that won't decay. A heavenly treasure as a reward from your Father. When you practice your righteousness from a heart that loves him and aims to please him, the treasure he gives is a heavenly treasure. And heavenly treasure endures. And that's our next economic lesson.
Heavenly treasure endures. Earthly treasure decays. Heavenly treasure endures. The treasure our Father gives is a gracious reward to his children that doesn't fade. Pests can't infest it. Chemicals can't corrode it. Earthquakes can't crack it. Markets can't consume it. Satan can't steal it. It's a foolproof return on your investment. The kind of investment that not even Rogers Financial can promise. And they're pretty good. (laughs) See, I don't think any of us need to be convinced that heavenly treasure outperforms earthly treasure every day of the week forever. We don't need to be convinced of that. We're here, we embrace it. The question I think we wanna ask is how do we build it up? How do we do what Jesus tells us to do and lay up treasures in heaven? Short answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at what we've seen in the middle of this chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. When we practice our righteousness from a heart that's devoted to God in love, he sees it and he rewards it, even if nobody else does. And not only do we enjoy his blessing now for living in obedience to his word, but he stores up treasure for us in heaven. And he does that because he's a gracious God, a good God, and a God who loves us. So give to the needy with a single aim to honor God. Draw near to your father in prayer and plead for him to be exalted among the nations because his glory is the chief aim of our prayer life. Perhaps you may choose to fast in certain circumstances as the Lord prompts you to. These are the three specific examples of what Jesus says builds treasure in heaven. There are more, we'll see. And in all of these things, Christ is the motive. It's not the treasure. When we aim for Christ, we get the greatest treasure, which is Jesus, and all the blessings of heaven and earth thrown in. God is the motive. Christ is the aim. He is the treasure. And here's a couple of connecting important passages that we should probably consider if we're going to get a well-rounded picture of what it is that actually does build treasure in heaven. So as we saw in Luke 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. A generous heart. Using the money that God gives for kingdom purposes and to show God's love builds treasure in heaven. It honors God and God sees it and God rewards. Paul, he tells Timothy at the end of 1 Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, there's a kind of life that isn't life at all. It's the kind of life we get if what we're aiming for begins and ends down here. But when we aim for the life that only God gives in Christ, that is life indeed. And so whether we're rich or poor down here, if we are aiming for that kind of life, it is a sure foundation for the future. And we see here in 1 Timothy that good works Doing good to others because of Christ who loves us and has done good to us, that builds future reward. Because God blesses those who serve him in that way because he's good. And the cool thing is, he's the one who's prepared these good works for us anyway. We don't come up with them. We were predestined for them. 
That's what Paul says right after he tells us that salvation is all of grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, we are saved for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a gracious God we serve indeed. This kind of thing is the stuff that should change our lives. It puts some things in perspective on what's really important in life, doesn't it? But I think the greatest motivation that Jesus gives us for seeking earthly treasure, I'm sorry, heavenly treasure, <laughs> comes in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus shows us here is that our treasure reveals our hearts. If you want to know what somebody values most, look at where they invest their money, their time, their energy, their gifts, and their resources. Where we invest what we have is where we know our hearts are because our, our, our money follows our hearts. Our resources follow our hearts. We only purchase that which is valuable to us. It's another truth of economics. You see, a tree is known by its fruit. And the root of our hearts is shown by what we invest ourselves in, including the money that God entrusts to us. So how do you know if your heart truly treasures Christ? How do you know if your heart truly treasures Christ? Well, look where you spend those things that God entrusts to you. Are you, a, are you a servant who, when the master comes, will say, well done, good and faithful? Well done. You have, you have done well with what I've entrusted to you. Because remember, it's all his. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including everything you've ever earned. See, it's not at all that Jesus is teaching some kind of ascetic life where we don't enjoy the gifts that God gives. We, we already saw in 1 Timothy 6, he gives us all things to enjoy, right? No, it's, it's that what we ultimately invest in shows what our hearts treasure. Our treasure reveals our hearts. And the critical question for us is, what then is it that my heart treasures? Because my heart will treasure something. I can no more not treasure something in my heart than I can stop being human. It's in our nature. It's part of what it means to be created as humans. Well, Jesus helps us here. See, it may not be easy for us to clearly see what we treasure, whether we treasure our triune God as he is worthy of being treasured. And so we need something of a vision test. And this is exactly the test that Jesus gives us in verses 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, this is kind of cryptic, isn't it? At least it doesn't seem very obvious to me on the surface. And this one gave me quite a bit of trouble this week. And then Deb reminded me, no, I really do need that outline by one. <laughs> so God brought it all clearly at 1230. So what does all this eye and body stuff mean? What is Jesus talking about? Well, to get at what Jesus is saying, we need to understand something about the eye in scripture. Of course, there's physical eyes, right? We know that. But there's also spiritual eyes, what sometimes people refer to as the eyes of the heart. And if you were worshiping in the 90s, you sang, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Something that Jeremy never sings. <laughs> There's spiritual eyes. And so Jesus uses the example of healthy and sick physical eyes to teach us something very true about our spiritual vision. The key here seems to be that in scripture, the eye is connected to the heart. 
the eye is connected to the heart bone. I'm just, that comes to my mind. So we set our spiritual gaze on what our hearts are set on. That's what's going on. Okay, we set our spiritual gaze on what our hearts are set on. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what do you always keep your eye on? Your treasure. See, the treasure you set your eyes on, whether it's a good treasure or bad, will be what your heart worships, whether the living God or idols. And those are the only two options. So look at how this connection between the eye and the heart comes into focus in Psalm 119. The psalmist in the same stanza says in verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. And then in verse 15 he says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The eyes and the heart are focused on the exact same thing because the eye is connected to the heart. The eye is a way of talking about the heart. What he holds out as supreme, the psalmist, is an eye that is fixed on God and his word. Everything else falls into line behind that kind of vision. And Jesus picks up this way of talking about the heart, and he turns it into an object lesson. And he says the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, whatever we see comes through our eyes. Every refraction of light that we have ever processed in our brain and that has illumined our steps has come into us through our eyes. Our vision gives our bodies the information they need to do what they need to do. Our enlightened eyes tells us, don't walk into that chair, jump over that rock, step up now, don't fall down those stairs. Okay? Our eyes. Two little things, really big deal. Our eyes are like lamps for our bodies. And if our eyes work, all of our bodies benefit, right? From our head to our toes. Avoid this, do that. Vision is good, right? Vision's a really good thing. But how does that obvious truth, right, translate into a spiritual lesson about treasure? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. He hasn't changed his subject. And, th- and here, actually, I think the, the translators of the King James Version are helpful in uncovering the meaning. Let me read you verse 22 in the King James. The light, is the, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single... Thy whole body shall be full of light. A good eye is a single eye. Its focus is sharp. It's not divided in its gaze. If you try to look two places at once, you get a headache, and you miss what's important about both of the things you're trying to look at, and it's the same with the eyes of your heart. Nothing, whether our physical or spiritual vision, was designed to fully gaze on two things at once. And so the idea Jesus is conveying to us is that a good eye focuses on God alone in everything it does, work, play, family life, entertainment, hobbies, saving, vacation, recreation, fill in the blank. In everything it does, a good eye aims to honor the Lord, which is why David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. In other words, give me a single vision that I may fear your name. Now, David did a lot of stuff, right? He fought wars. He loved his wives. Don't do that. Just love your wife, your one wife. He taught his children. He led a kingdom. He was an incredible guy. And yet, in all that he did, his eye was single. It was the glory of God. And where he let his eyes stray, he got into big trouble and it wrecked his family. But yet he was a man, God says, who was after his own heart. And may it be with us. 
And so specifically in this passage, to honor the Lord by investing our money and energy and resources in what truly lasts means to invest them in kingdom building endeavors. It doesn't mean that that's all we spend our money on, but it certainly includes a significant focus on kingdom building endeavors because that's what God has entrusted to us our things for. That's what Jesus calls you and me to. In contrast to this, though, is the alternative, which we see in verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So if a good eye is singularly focused on God, then a bad eye is focused on self. A bad eye is focused on self. Well, how do you figure? Because he doesn't actually say the word self here in this verse. Well, this verse is smack in the middle of Jesus warning us not to spend ourselves in what building up treasures on earth for ourselves. So he actually does say it. If heavenly treasure is built by good works done for God's glory, and if that's what a healthy eye goes after, then earthly treasure is built. A bad eye is focused on what benefits us at the center. And how does Jesus describe that kind of a self-centered person? He says they are in darkness. And not only darkness, but how great is that darkness? They have no sense about what true godliness is. It's not even their ultimate aim. They spend their money on themselves and they get while the getting's good, right? They're stingy toward God, which which is what the word bad means in this verse. They don't know what it means to walk in the light. Their souls are not illumined. This is what the parable of the rich fool is all about, which Jesse read to us. It's a guy who was so focused on himself that even though he had more than he even knew what to do with, literally, he's just like, I don't know what to do with all that I've got. And instead of benefiting the people around him, instead of, who was it who prospered his fields in the first place? It was the Lord. But not a thought for God. No, not a thought for his neighbor in need. It was about himself, and so he invented ways to enjoy more of what he had. And maybe he justified it to himself by saying that he didn't know what kind of economy he'd be facing under the next administration. Maybe he bought the lie that you really can't ever have enough. He, he, he didn't know how long he would live, and so the best he could do is take a guess with his retirement investor. He looked away from his neighbors in need and made sure that he gave to his local synagogue just enough to keep the rabbi off his back. But God took his life. There seems to be a theme here, right? God took his life, and Jesus tells us that in laying up treasure with himself at the center, it showed that his heart was not rich toward God. And so what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? Do we want to be rich toward God or rich toward ourselves? The thing is, it's going to be one way or the other. And Jesus puts that in the starkest possible terms when he brings in slave language. Look at verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This isn't employment language. No, friends, this is slave language. The verb serve is a form of the word doulos, which means slave in Greek. And in light of that, the word master means exactly what you think it means, the one who owns the slave. And yes, we are often allergic to that because of our dark history as a nation. And actually, friends, it's just frankly, it's the dark history of the human race. But there's no two ways about it. Jesus tells us we will be either slaves of one thing or the other. It's the language of total ownership. And Jesus lets us in on a couple important truths about how masters work. 
The first is this, you cannot not have a master. You cannot not have a master. This really gets at us, right? Because we're free people, <laughs> right? We watch movies with Scotsmen played by Mel Gibson who wave their, for heaven's sake, I have the Braveheart sword in my office, <laughs> right? We're free. And yet we may be politically free, but we can never be spiritually free in the sense of not having a master. How about when we're born? We're born slaves of sin and spiritually dead. And when a person is drawn to the Lord, he, yes, he is set free. For when, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Free from sin, free from death, free from condemnation, but not free from God. Paul identifies himself over and over again as a slave of Christ. And so are we, if we are in Christ. So whether we're enslaved to sin or enslaved to Christ, we cannot not have a master. And the thing that Jesus presses home to us here in verse 24 is that not only will you have a master, but you can only have one master. And that's really the crux of how masters work. They don't share. A slave relationship is different from an employee relationship. You can have two or three jobs, but a slave could never have two or three masters because a master had full rights over the slave, and so only one master will do. Jesus is warning here about the tendency of our hearts to be set on all kinds of treasures that we enjoy in this life. And that really is the gravitational pull of our sinful hearts. It's like a black hole that just wants to draw us in. And if left unchecked, it will mean that we are not serving God. And so the last words of our passage is Jesus saying, you cannot, like you can't, you can't, it's not possible to serve God and money. Either our aim will be the glory of God or our aim will be the accumulation of wealth, status, pleasure, whatever other idols would sit readily on the throne where Christ alone belongs. We cannot have it both ways. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his very soul? You may be poor or you may be rich. You may have millions of dollars in the bank or pennies to your name. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus, Zacchaeus. These were rich men, and yet they had one master, the Lord. Jesus himself came and was poor, and countless of his people throughout church history and in scripture have been destitute, and yet also had the same master. The point isn't wealth or destitution, it's the devotion of the heart. It's the aim of the life, what philosophers call the telos. What is the ultimate aim? that controls everything. Your devotion is always shown by how you use what God entrusts to you. And that really is the point of our passage, that if Jesus is your master, then your money will show it. If Jesus is your master, then your money will show it. And not only your money, but whatever else God entrusts to you for stewardship, including your resources and your time. And so knowing that we have a choice before us, right, choose this day whom you will serve, I think the question that best uh, interests us is how do we choose wisely? W what does it look like to steward well this famously tricky thing called money and use it in a way that shows that our master is the Lord in heaven? The one who, as we saw in Peter, purchased us with the most precious treasure, his own blood, that we might become his, the price at which he valued us. Well, there's a lot of scripture that deals with this question. I'd like to encourage you with just a few biblical commands for serving God with your wealth and storing up treasure in heaven. The first is this, resolve to give to the Lord first. 
resolve to give to the Lord first. See, the Lord has always given generously to his people. And he calls them to take a portion of what he's given and to give it back to him in gratitude. What do we see righteous Abel doing? Bringing of the firstborn of his flock to the Lord in worship that honored God. Israel gave an offering of first fruits as part of a tithe of all they received. And Paul commanded the Corinthians to set aside a portion of their income each week in giving to the aid of the church in Jerusalem. In Proverbs, which we also saw earlier, we see that this is a key part of biblical wisdom and obedience. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, while a tenth is never commanded under the new covenant, and while the tithe under the old covenant was actually quite a bit more than 10%, um, the principle still stands, doesn't it? That God's people are to honor him from all they receive up front, not as an afterthought. For those who just want to get all type A and want to know exactly what that means, he doesn't tell you. He doesn't give you a number. There's not a percentage mark where, oh, now, now I've hit righteousness, right? And so that's going to just have to frustrate those of you who are like me. But the principle is the same. Resolve to give to the Lord first. Honor him from what you receive. And second, and related to this, cultivate a practice of joyful generosity. Cultivate a practice of joyful generosity toward God and others. And really, this is what's at the heart of giving under the new covenant. Far more than simply a use of our money and resources, this is the attitude of the heart. It's really, there's, there's two things going on, right? There's the use of our money, and there's the attitude toward our money. The attitude of the heart is transformed by the grace of God in Christ. And as new creatures under the gospel, we have new hearts. Hearts that are bound to the Lord, not to the world. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Friends, it's not about you better do this or else. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And if you find yourself struggling and never having any cheer, it's because the eyes aren't on the true treasure, which is Christ. Because only a vision of Jesus transforms the heart. Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So set your eyes on Jesus and what he has done for you, what he continues to do for you, his love for you, his intercession for you. Get a fuller vision of Jesus, and the cheerfulness will come. The Great Commission goes forward in missions as God's people give sacrificially and joyfully. The local church gathers for worship and evangelism and fellowship because the saints keep the lights on, the pastors working, and the ministries moving by faithful giving of time, money, service, and resources. The kingdom of God is the rule of Christ, right? Remember, this whole Sermon on the Mount, this is a a sermon about the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? It is the rule of God in the hearts of those who come out of darkness and into the light through the gospel. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of sinners who are converted. The church is a spiritual body. But the kingdom spreads and the church worships in a very tangible way 
and God entrusts his tangible wealth to his children to see the kingdom spread. Make friends for yourself in eternal dwellings with the unrighteous mammon, Jesus says. He provides for the needy through what he's provided for his redeemed. We are God's answer to the poor. So cultivate a practice of joyful generosity toward God and others. And as you do, and here's the third truth, enjoy what God gives with open-handed thankfulness. He isn't calling you to poverty. Scripture never paints poverty as a virtue and never suggests that believers should just sit idly by while poverty overtakes them. No, rather, Scripture commends hard work, industry, and godly economic policies in order to promote human flourishing. This is not health and wealth gospel. There's only one gospel, and it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Paul says to the Ephesians, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And here's the reason, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. So enjoying God's blessings and provision is connected with the joyful giving and generous heart. And in some of the most sobering words on money in all of scripture, Paul tells Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And the reason is because even unbelievers get that. They know they, they know they need to do that. And they don't need Jesus in order to know that. And in the very next chapter, he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money in itself is evil. So saints, well-meaning in the past, who have just sought to get rid of everything because they don't want that evil stuff, they've kind of missed the point. It's a root of all kinds of evil. It brings with it temptations on which, against which we need to be on guard. But then... Just right after that, he finishes out 1 Timothy by telling the rich not to put their hope in riches. He doesn't tell them to get rid of their riches. He says, don't put your hope in it. Don't lay up treasures for yourself. Instead, do what? Be rich in good works, generous to those in need, ready to share, and enjoy what God gives with open-handed thankfulness, because that's why he gives it. So Christians don't run from wealth because it's wealth. Rather, we enjoy it, give it, thank God for it, and use it for kingdom purposes. And that's really what controls the whole thing, right? Is kingdom purposes. What does it look like to use this in a way that shows that we have a master different from the way that the world uses what God entrusts to them? We use it in a way that lays out treasures in heaven. And one thing that's important uh, important, and by I'll get, this will be the last thing we say about it. It's an important matter of righteousness that, that sometimes gets ignored, is that we need to save wisely for future needs and for the inheritance of our children and grandchildren. See, wise investing is not necessarily laying up treasures on earth. It's not. Now, for us who don't do well with tension, it's easy to make a, a false dichotomy and split what God puts together. But we have to think God's thoughts after him and say what scripture says in whole. The abuse of things comes by taking only part and making that the whole thing. So what I mean is that wise investing is not laying up treasures on earth necessarily. It can be, but for the Christian, it must not be. There's a way to invest that is faithless and anxious, self-focused and materialistic, and then there's God's way to invest, which is to aim to have enough to live on in old age, use for kingdom purposes, bless future generations with as they seek to live before the Lord. 
So Solomon says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Don't just think one generation ahead. Think two generations ahead. Think, how can you bless those that God brings from you that you are seeking to disciple so that they can then go and disciple and do good with what God gives to them? And Paul knows this. He's saturated with his Bible. And echoing Solomon, he tells the Corinthians that children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And for those of you who are like, yeah, but Solomon's in the Old Testament. Paul's in the New. Okay? The principle stands. How would we sum up all this? How would we sum up these things, these commands, and use what God gives for God's glory, whether it's our time, money, resources, or energy, or whatever? How do we use our earthly treasure to lay up heavenly treasure and spread the gospel of the kingdom? And I'd suggest that John Wesley nailed it when he said, and this is easy to remember, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Use your resources as God's good gift for God's great glory and your neighbor's great good. Because friends, if, if Jesus is your master, then your money will show it. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, Christ fully intends to nourish us to obedient stewardship in the joy of the gospel. As we take this bread that shows his broken body and this wine that shows his spilt blood for our salvation, what we're doing in this moment as his people, his one body, the church, is communing with him and with one another and finding strength where we are weak, affection where we've been cold-hearted and apathetic. We're seeing God's preserving grace in action where otherwise we would wander and fall away. If you are struggling in your Christian life, if you feel weak in your faith and like you just don't cut it, guess what? This is God's plan for you in order to grow in Christ. This is a love gift he has given for you to demonstrate in physical ways the very physical gospel of a Savior who took on flesh and blood to die for you, who rose again bodily, who bodily is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven and who is bodily returning one day, which is why we take this until he returns. If you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, we would ask you to stay seated this morning. If you have not come to Christ repenting of your sins and following him as your Lord, this meal is not for you. It is a family meal. And God gives very clear warnings about those who take it lightly, which would include taking it without trusting in Jesus. It's also a family meal at a table in a house through which the doors are baptism. If you have believed in Jesus, but you have not yet followed him in the waters of baptism, talk to an elder. Talk to Talk to a small group, talk to somebody who can communicate, hey, we, when are we doing baptisms again? Because baptism has been understood scripturally as a visible union with the church, and the church comes and sits at the table. So if you've not followed the Lord in baptism, we would also ask you to stay seated. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, the words of institution. As I do so, elders who are serving, if you would please come up during the reading, and then I'm going to pray over the supper. Today, as we usually do, Go ahead and form two lines and come forward. Elders, please join me. First Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord, our God and Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior, Holy Spirit, the seal of our redemption, we praise you, our one holy and triune God, for you are good. We thank you and praise you for the precious treasure of Jesus' blood spilt for us that we might have life. We thank you for drawing us to this table through the gospel, showing us that you overcame sin and death for us to set us free from our slavery to that which destroys and to give us life. It is good to be your children. Lord, we pray that as we come to your table that you would nourish us to greater faith, greater obedience, greater joy, greater stewardship, greater faithfulness in all that you lay before us. Strengthen your church in this cup, in this bread, and as we partake together, may we behold our precious Savior who alone does great wonders. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.